Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. Alright, today we are going to talk about another book. Today's book is called A Dalliance with Destiny and I have with me the author of the book, Aman Singh Maharaj. Aman, welcome. Hi Kushal. Hi listeners. Namaste and my pranams to everyone. So Aman, uh, there's a tradition in the podcast. Every time I start a podcast, especially when the guest has come for the first time, I request them to tell my viewers or there is an audio version also. So I have to pay full respect to the audio only listeners, to the listeners also. Uh, uh, that, uh, you know, the guests tell everybody a little bit about themselves because I was going through your bio in the book itself and, and it says you have an avid interest in anthropology. So so maybe you can tell everybody a little bit about yourself and then maybe we can do some, some talk about anthropology then. Sure. So... Um... You know, just a sort of boring stuff first. I'm an engineer. I don't know if that sounds boring, but uh, I'm quite no, left brain. Most Indians, most Indians are engineers. So it is Indians are like, Hamara banda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, look, I'm also an economist. Um, I, after my engineering degree, I did an MBA and a PhD in economics. So I'm a bit of a mix. Um, and then um, in the last, I think, 10 years, I don't use any of my qualifications. I've just become a businessman. And uh, uh, yeah, I travel a lot and the writing is more of a passion for me along with anthropology. So you'll find a lot of cultural stuff in my writing itself. Uh, well, so far it's just in India and South Africa. But as I get to write more, you'll probably find other cultures being absorbed into my writing as well. So Aman, were you born in India or born and raised in South Africa? So which variety are you? <laughs> <laughs> so I am a South African Indian. So I'm fourth generation. I am of Indian uh, origin in terms Kesh, of race. Keshav Maharaj, just like Keshav Maharaj. Just like Keshav Maharaj. The cricket player. The cricket player. The cricket See, Indians player. understand cricketing analogies. Yeah, yeah. Every, every Indian in India associates South Africa with cricket. So I'm trying to yeah, change we, that. Man, they had one of the best teams. One of yes. the best teams. Yeah, they've, so, they've had a, a very good team since 1992, I think. It's just when they go into the finals, they tend to choke sometimes, but uh, they're pretty good. Yeah, that, that's true. But, but okay, so if I was to ask you a little bit about your experience, you said you're a fourth-generation South African now. Uh, I, I'm going to treat you like a South African of Indian origin. So if yeah. you don't mind, like, uh, I, because I think that's what you are and that's how you should be treated and that's only fair. But... So how was it, if you don't mind me asking, uh, being a fourth generation Indian uh, living in South Africa uh, and, and how was your experience when you would come to India? So, Kushal, you know, I'm not the benchmark for the traditional South African, uh, South African of Indian origin because I've been to India since 1981 and I identify more with India uh, than with South Africa. Um, even though, you know, I've spent nearly 50 years of my life in South Africa. Um, you know, to give you an example, I support the Indian cricket team, not the South African cricket team, despite the fact that there's, you know, Keshav Maraj, who has my surname, and he's playing in the South African team. It's just the way I'm wired. Um, so, you know, we've got about 1.2 million Indians in Durban itself. So with the highest concentration of Indians in one city outside of India. 
there was a stage where South Africa had the highest number of Indians in the world outside of India. But then, you know, India has this love affair with uh, England and with uh, America. So you find a lot of Indians have uh, immigrated there. So we know more the world's lead in terms of that. But if you come to Durban, you'll think it's a mini India. We've got Gujaratis, we've got UPIs, Biharis, uh, uh, we've got uh, people from Tamil Nadu and Andhra Pradesh. So that's our mix of people in that 1.2 million in, South Africa, in Durban. All right. So, so you, you are quite accomplished uh, academically. So what happened here? Like, how did you jump into business then? Like, usually, you know, you associate people with a PhD. Eventually, they're going to be like, I'm going to be a professor. Uh, they get into academia or you have a background in economics. So you might end up in economics, let's say, policy making or things like that. Uh, how did you jump into the business world then? So I was uh, quite involved in policy making at a government level. But, you know, I'm not going to be bashful. I'm not going to lie. The truth is, uh, I didn't like reporting to someone. I wanted to be my own boss. And, uh, you know, sometimes reporting to people who may be less talented than you can be a very aggravating thing. And the truth of it is, I wanted to make money. And you're not going to make the kind of money I would like to have made as a as a salaried person. You know, when you're a businessman, this, you know, uh, the sky isn't your ceiling on things. So that's why I went into it. And I think I can make a better difference as well as a businessman uh, than being sort of siloed uh, as an employee. So, so, so when did you start your love for anthropology? Because, you know, even your bio in the book, like I said, it, it very specifically talks about it. Your website talks about it. I did go and uh, check your website out too, uh, you know, as I was researching on you because we don't know each other. So, you know, I had to be prepared before I speak with you. Sure. So, you know, anthropology was something you, you are quite open about. You mention it in a lot of places. So how did that come up? And, and, and if, 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 Am I right to understand that this book was also about, in a way, your anthropological journey and your your experiments with it, in a way? Okay, so to answer the first part, my interest in anthropology comes from a hell of a lot of reading. You know, I, uh, I'm six foot four, but I'm, I was quite useless as a sportsman. I had a brute strength, but I don't have skill or flexibility. So uh, growing up, you know, in the 80s, um, the only kind of uh, sort of entertainment you had was either sport or reading. Uh, TV should start probably around 7, 7 p.m. every evening. So um, because I wasn't a good sportsman, I went into reading and I you know, was a voracious reader growing up. And that's where you learn about different cultures. I used to read fiction and non-fiction. And then as I grew up into an adult and I started traveling a little bit more, and you know, I think I've been to every continent um, in, on the globe, and you see the different cultures and the way they celebrate different things. You find the commonalities and you find the differences. And it's all so exciting, you know, whether it be in terms of culture itself or architecture or customs or whatever the case may be, or even rituals. Then um, in terms of whether the book has elements of myself in it, look, I think if any writer who writes fiction tells you they aren't certain aspects of different characters that has you in it, uh, they would be lying uh, 
obtrusely. The truth is um, there are certain events that I've experienced around me or incidents, but you know, you can't put it there as it happened, or you can't put the character there as being you because I don't think I'm exciting enough. Uh, you've got to put it on steroids. So, you know, whilst there may be events and aspects of your personality in the book, you've got to hype it up to the point that it becomes almost unrecognizable. So it's not an autobiography in any way. In fact, you know, the protagonist himself is an anti-hero. So I hope to think that I'm not similar to the protagonist in the book. So, and I'll tell you why I asked this. There's a very specific moment in the book where I'm just reading the excerpt where you've written with Millen trying to subdue the intermittent pain of surfacing childhood memories. They went through the chit chat of meaningless topics for an hour. Horoscopes. <laughs> I like it. Her <laughs> hair tended, tended to flatten with the humidity of the coast. A few days spent with her family here and she was ready to go back to her anonymous apartment up country. You really seem to value this whole anonymous thing. He asked eventually. And then, then this is the bit that I wanted to really read because I had highlighted this. Quote, I simply need my independence from my parents. I just can't handle that generation and their outdated quirks. When I left home this evening, my mom was rubbing those four-armed goddesses with the vigor of someone possessed, as if any dust on those deities would prevent them from blessing us. She does things like that, and it fucking pisses me off. All she needs <laughs> is a can of prasso a flannel cloth and a few Hindu idols and she's in seventh heaven. I'm just not into all this shit. I see myself as being more spiritual than religious. What does that actually mean? Spiritual and not religious, Milan asked. I'm just not into all this excessive Hindu mumbo jumbo. You do realize that's quite an elitist statement, right? Your alleged spirituality, it's a cliche to make you feel better than the masses, like you're above them all their base rituals, which implies that you're somehow closer to God than they are. It all sounds so arbitrary and meaningless. That's really your ego talking, which immediately debunks this whole spiritual tag that you think you may have. This is beautifully written. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this bit in the book because this somewhere down the line, you know, I can relate to it. Now, I've, now I don't hide. This podcast is literally called the Charvak podcast. I am a Charvak. I am a Gnostic. I have never hidden it. People who come to the podcast also know I am I am a Gnostic, but I also very openly call myself a Hindu. And, uh, you know, my, my westernized new atheistic friends, whom I used to hang out a lot in my youth days in the Dawkins forums and stuff like that, they would never understand when I would tell them, I'm not like you. And now let's talk about this line. It's very interesting. So recently, literally, I, I'm not kidding, like, uh, I guess... 45 to minutes to an hour before I hopped onto this podcast, I'll even tell you the name of the podcast I was listening to. It was Mark Rolls on the Michael Shermer show. And the title of the podcast was called The Good Life Lessons from the World. Basically, world's long, it calls longest science, uh, scientific uh, studies, etc. on happiness, blah, blah, blah. And in that Michael Shermer, I think it's around an hour and 30 minutes into the conversation because I, I would love for people to check that out along with your book too because it is a perfect parallel because Michael Shermer asks the guest about this very line. He's like, what do the people mean when they say I'm spiritual, not religious? 
So let's talk about spiritual, not religious now. What do people mean? It's like a word they say. It means nothing. It's 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 basically a bullshit story. That's what it is. Yeah, um, you, it is. Yeah. Uh, you're trying to say, you know what? I'm I'm above all this base rituals. You know, I'm on a different path. I'm on a higher path to God. I don't need to do rituals like a hawan or you know bow before a deity or whatever to uh, link up with God. By doing that, you're trying to show that you are past you know um, uh, the average masses who may pray in rote or whatever it is when it comes to ritualism. But within that, when you're trying to show that you are not just different, but you are higher, it shows ego. And ego itself is automatically uh, not a spiritual thing. So it's kind of contradictory to say I'm spiritual and not uh, religious, because besides being meaningless, it just lays you open to criticism from an intellectual. And I've look, I've been on plenty of dates. Kushal, I'm nearly 50 years old. I'm single. And uh, not that I'm marketing myself, <laughs> but, you know, if you took it an average of one new date per month or maybe every two and two weeks, you do the math. And it's happened quite often that girls have spoken like this, thinking, wow, they're making such grandiose statements. And uh, the first few times I took it, um, but eventually, you know what, I said enough of this bullshit, let me give it back to them because I don't like meaningless statements, especially when it's said in such an arbitrary way, because uh, I think you said you agnostic. I'm very much a practicing Hindu. Um, I don't say from the point of view of just, you know, I what I eat. Okay, that's more to do with being an Indian. But I do my hawan. I may be fourth generation, but I do my own hawan. I have a prayer room in my house that's According to Vastu Shastra, it's in the northeast. Uh, at the entrance of my house, you'll find a Tulsi tree. Uh, outside my house in the northeast as well, facing the rising sun, you'll find a uh, janda with the Hanuman flag. So maybe I'm just too traditional and the world has changed. But uh, trust me, I can become very, very vicious uh, when I hear things that are not exactly kosher. In my mind and as i'm talking about lord hanuman there's a whole group of monkeys playing outside my house if <laughs> you wouldn't believe that yeah how's that for a but you know yeah and and this is true like people say things that sound profound but they actually mean nothing and and it comes from this incessant need especially you know in circles like i'll tell you a, a good friend of mine so I think this is how modern Hindus cope with having faith. I, I, very serious. Uh, and this is where I'm coming from. I'm very comfortable in my disbelief and still being a Hindu. Because yeah. the, the culture I belong to has a place for it's that Hindu. too. But what I noticed in, in, in a lot of my friends, so obviously I'm not going to take the name here, but I clearly remember, so I'm part of this badminton group in the local gymkhana, we play badminton. And you know, once we were having this chat and, and a dear friend of mine in the group actually came up to me and we were talking about religion and this and that. And they're like, no man, I'm not into rituals. I'm just spiritual. I'm not religious. So they have reduced religion to, to ritual. ritual. And yes, and 
and they have reduced ritualism itself per se to something you know very useless so uh, we were in a sport gathering so what i did was i just asked them a very basic question i was like so i was just you know we were practicing for a in inter gymkhana tournament we every year in december the gymkhana where i am a member of we have this tournament so the badminton group has a tournament so i said so you know we are playing doubles yes so in doubles before we go to the match you know sometimes as a team of two we you know we join hands and we give each other a pep talk before getting on to the to the badminton court they're like yes we do as like, what do you think that is and that person had no answer as like don't you think that's a ritual we do to focus to to get ourselves pumped up before we go and uh, far, you know go into the battlefield as such at that moment of time i was like so why is that ritual better and a religious person let's say pouring water in a certain direction or doing xyz demeaning and now tell me are you spiritual and not religious and that person said no i guess i'm religious too just in a different field it's just ego yeah exactly i mean everything you do is ritualistic that is how we are basically i'm not just talking about religion it's exactly as you're saying it involves every aspect of our life i think maybe just people think it's cool to say you know i'm not religious or spiritual and it's just a meaningless statement totally meaningless statement and it's it's bizarre that you know quite a number of people out there say that um i haven't picked it up in india i've picked it up in south africa uh, maybe our female of our race group is a generation ahead and i say ahead in inverted commas it doesn't necessarily mean a better thing so they use terms like this terminologies but uh, i think in india you'll find this more and more now it depends on which circles you hang out in but yes uh, Uh, i think in circles in which uh, the pressure of uh, secular thought is a little more uh, it exists more um, and in circles where the pressure of secular thought is less it exists less so if i was to put it down in the bare bones way this friend of mine leans left but still wants to retain you know their faith so i guess that's how they cope with it which in yeah. my case you know there is no coping mechanism i am what i am and i am comfortable the way i am and i'm sure they are too but i just found this spiritual not religious kind of hilarious now another bit in the book uh, where uh, again and i'll tell you why i'm reading this is because it kind of relates to the there is a pattern in your book where there i don't know i sense there is there is this back and forth jabbing between two cultural uh, entities right one is saying smash the thing out of you and the other is saying no it's just what are you talking about man you're just looking at it in the wrong way it, i i get a sense that that's like a that's a pattern in in, in your book you know so I, i'll read this bit again this is further down ahead where you say she all, she had already begun heaving with his words responding breathlessly defile me fuck the english out of me in one deaf movement he swung her around entering her with contrived anger from the rear forced to oblige her fantasy he heard the voice of the ultimate cuckold lord lewis mount back in his head as he rattled it to kimberly do it for england milan 
uh, perhaps <laughs> falsely hero worship soul, once a prime minister in England during World War II, now lounging about in purgatory in his Hamburg hat that sat atop a pudgy face as the powers that be debated as to whether he was good or bad, heard Milan's grunts, not too happy about the matter. <laughs> Quote, why was this beastly Indian chap creating a scandal in this fair English maiden's bump? Isn't just <laughs> it just isn't cricket all this buggery? Standing on the wooden floor, calf muscles coil, brown arse thrusting towards a pink one at frenetic speed, and Kimberly's howls of delight in sync with each inward plunge. Millen punctured himself on a battlefield, valiantly defending himself against red coat soldiers. So, where do we start? Do we talk about how dare you go to someone of us? That angle, because you you hit, you punch so many people in these two, three paragraphs. You're like, you know, in the Hindi bandi leli kind of a thing. How dare you? kind of a thing. You know, how how dare you cross the line? Is that the thing? Or or the thing is it was as if not it was not enough that they took our cricket away. Now they're taking everything else away. So so let's start. Where do you, how did you come up with this wonderful word? So <laughs> You know, I blame a lot of the social ills that plague the world. I blame it on colonialism. Uh, I don't think we should use it as an excuse to allow the world to uh, become any worse. Uh, for example, in South Africa, uh, we, like India, we are victims of colonialism and apartheid. Uh, but uh, at the same time, India has now gone beyond that and is striving. You know, it's gone, it, it has hit double digit growth at certain times. In South Africa, we're still far behind and we are using colonialism as an excuse uh, for us not to grow. At the same time, colonialism is the source of all the problems if you dig deep enough. And um, one of the people who gets hero worshipped in history is. Uh, Winston Churchill, you know, he's the guy who wore the Homburg hat and he was the one who referred to Hindus or Indians as a beastly people with beastly religion. So I, I'm actually hinting, or I'm, you know, being a little direct actually that I'm referring to him. And it's to say, you know what, to hell with you. We have now entered the realm. Maybe you may have, we, we may have taken cricket from you, but you took 45 trillion US dollars from India over those 200 or 300 years. I'm not sure about the exact time period. Um, there's also a hint towards, if you know Durban well enough, uh, or if you know South Africa, there's three big cities in South Africa. There's uh, Johannesburg, which is uh, your sort of the powerhouse of Africa. It's the wealthiest city in the whole of Africa. There's Cape Town, who everyone knows. It's one of the most prettiest cities in the world. I rank it uh, sort of uh, in line with Rio in terms of beauty and, you know, it having Table Mountain. Durban, where I stay, is the poor cousin, um, you know, people who can't afford a really top holiday or top-notch holiday come to Durban because it's cheaper. You want to buy a cheap meal. There's lots of Indian eateries that provide you with uh, Indian food at a very cheap price. And you get all the sort of lower middle class people who will come to Durban because they can afford it. Durban is also very segregated. Johannesburg is a melting pot because uh, it has all the head offices for, so all the top-notch people go there. 
And because you are not staying with your family, your colleagues becomes your friends. And that cuts across the racial lines. So in Johannesburg, you'll see lots of mixed race couples. You'll see the same in Cape Town because Cape Town is an international city. It uh, has the most number of tourists. So you see a lot of mixed couples coming into the city. And, you know, you see a lot of people from Europe, white people who are into this whole exotic, you know, I want to be with another race kind of thing, whether it's romantically or if it's only for just a brief moment or for the holiday itself. Durban's different. Durban's very segregated. So um, you'll find, like, if you go to a nightclub, there'll be an Indian nightclub or there'll be an African nightclub or there'll be a white nightclub, meaning not, it's not uh, based on any legislation anymore, but it's based on people's preferences because we're a family-led environment, so we tend to go out with our family. Our friends tend to be from our own race. Over and above that, a lot of the, I won't say the Afrikaners, they are regarded as white, they are of Dutch descent, but you get the English who are still over the generations who look at Indians as being sugarcane workers who came here. They haven't gotten it out of the mindset. So you could be the most beautiful Indian man and they could find you beautiful, but they would not necessarily date you. Even if, you know, uh, pound for pound, flesh for flesh, the man may be better looking than the white woman. The Indian man may be better looking than the white woman, which is an example that comes from this book, A Passage to India. I don't know if you ever watched the movie, if you didn't read the book by E.M. Foster, where it's said in court that um, an Indian man, I think he was a doctor, was apparently, had apparently allegedly raped a white woman in India. And the court, uh, his lawyer said, but what happens in the case if the Indian man is better looking than the white woman? Why would you assume that he raped her? Now, it's a similar thing I face here in the sense, or not I face, I think, you know, we see here where the darker race, the darker the race, the less attractive they may seem to the fairer races at a social level. Uh, so people won't admit, you know what, I'm attracted to the darker races. Uh, they won't admit it in a public forum because it's still a very segregated city and we still have these hierarchies. But behind closed doors, there are lots of other things that happen. You know, uh, uh, we had a whole new race that came about in South Africa called the colored race that came about from the mingling of, you know, black and uh, white. So it's that, that sort of whole passage that you just read is basically a big up yours to all the racist people who uh, don't want to show the reality of what they're attracted to especially in Durban. And uh, it's also a big up yours to the English for their colonizing ways and and destroying, you know, uh, countries in totality. I mean, India still faces the whole um, uh, sort of uh, drama it has from partition because if you get those uh, incursions coming in from Pakistan, and it's all because of colonialism, they redesigned the boundaries. It should never have happened, but it did. So that's what that passage is all about. So so you'd say this again, I had in the book, it was fated as my takdeer to have not been born in India in this lifetime. But hopefully I would at least get to die in the soccer of her bosom. For my flesh was made up of the soil of India and in my arteries flowed the Ganga. Obviously you say things like India beckoned with her treasures of philosophy, architecture, intellectualism, civilization, benevolence. So... Is this 
is this a struggle many indians face look look aman i cannot relate to this i live here sometimes yeah. i i don't i mean i can because i have lived outside india too so so in a way i i get it i get when people say say things and i'm not saying this is you trying to share your thoughts maybe it's just the character and you're just stating what the character is feeling over there but on a larger scale i i because when i meet a lot of people there is this craving people miss india people miss the civilization but like a person like me just last year i was out of india for four and a half months and you know i'll be the first one to admit i missed indian food a lot <laughs> because i i really like indian food and you just get shitty indian food in north america i don't know what the hell they cook that abomination is not indian food what they call indian food sorry to my canadian and american viewers i mean i don't know what you guys eat there that's not indian but you you miss uh, in a very weird way you you miss uh, the sound also at times you know you, 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 your senses are on hyper alert in india like uh, that famous russell peters joke you, know, you come out of the plane <laughs> from canada to india and all your senses are on hyper alert at the sound action everything is there around you so so is that yearning is that yearning or self discovery now a thing in the diaspora because i rarely find it especially in second generation third generation indian kids now you're a fourth generation indian origin person from south africa this is rare to read a person writing a book mentioning something like this i'm not saying zero in north america but in the western world which is formally known as the west now this is very rare yeah like i said um i am not a benchmark for the average indian um you know i'm the kind of person when i went to india first in 1981 and i landed there i fell in love as a 7 year old kid i loved the smell those days we used to all land in bombay to saha airport as soon as you land in saha airport you know those days you get the smell of the open sewer system in some strange way i loved it i identified this with bombay it was my first international trip and uh with that smell of the open sewer system there was a smell of the dabas and those lovely pav bajis and uh, all the pani puri and so forth it's a pav baji has more of the sort of fragrance for me um and i identify with india because i've been to india so many times i like a little bit of filth don't send me to dubai i've been to dubai many times yes it's lovely it's modern it's glamorous but i like a little bit of filth a little bit of smell um i don't like some sort of antiseptic sanitized place that i need to go to i love the noises you land in bombay it's you know the taxis the well in those days it was the black and yellow fiats uh you know tooting their horns all the time and it still goes on with the other cars and same in delhi and all the big cities at the same time it's the intellectualism that i get in india you know i could speak to a taxi driver in india in my broken hindi it takes about a week for my hindi to kick in uh, once i'm in india and they can give me a whole philosophical discussion that i cannot possibly get even with an educated person in a hurry in south africa it's just the way it is and then you know uh, this is the cliche people are happy in india the people living on the streets are happy they're smiling they're not sad they're not angry they've accepted their lot in life and to me there's a great amount of uh spiritual advancement in something like that that you have accepted your lot in life so 
it's the whole hustle and bustle that attracts me. And yes, uh, if you look at the house that I'm staying in, you're probably not going to get that in India in a hurry. I'm, I'm probably upper middle class in terms of South African living, maybe even more. But in India, I would not get that kind of lifestyle, uh, uh, you know, for the same amount of money because property is so expensive. In South Africa, we also live a very colonialist lifestyle, just like India, because labor is cheap. Um, it just is what it is. Life is very easy. Yet in America and uh, England, where a lot of uh, people from India, you know, uh, think that, you know, that's the idea, that's the, uh, you know, uh, ideal place to be in. They have to clean their own toilets. Whereas in India, the middle class has not just servants, they've got drivers, they've got access to chefs or cooks to do their cooking. They've got their kitty clubs and they've got their uh, servants to go do their buying and so forth. So it's a bit bizarre for me. What, what do they see in America and the USA that they cannot get in India? Anyway, you've got gated estates in India. In fact, I wanted to move to Pune at one stage. I'm still considering it because uh, it's very much aligned with South Africa in terms of its lifestyle. If you go to the east of Pune, the new areas, so generally people don't people people in south africa indian people in south africa who have not been to india when you mention india they start thinking of absolute filth smells um and you know discomfort they don't know what india can offer but the people who have been they know and you get two types of people you get the person who goes to india and falls in love with it and you don't have to be indian to fall in love with india or you get the person who goes to India and absolutely hates it. I've had friends who landed in India on a Friday and then just changed their flights and came back home on a Saturday because they just couldn't handle it. It was such a culture shock. So in no way am I indicative of the average Indian, but there are a few of us around who hold India very dear to our hearts. Now, another theme, again, I'm going to read this. You have said, and this is again... You know, a very, you know, this is a very internal Desi problem that you have touched upon. And and this is between what uh, we famously, you know, we are called fobs and y'all are called confused Desis, right? That is the standard uh, back and forth that we have amongst each other. So in, in this place, yeah, it's very interesting. You use the immigration official as the example where you say, the nighttime immigration official was surly, sullen, and swollen like a boxer who had been walloped continuously on his face. He didn't bother to look at me, expecting me to speak Hindi simply because I looked Indian. I explained to the official my linguistic limitations in some sort of pigeon version, the vernacular. He looked at me and shook his head in disgust as if to say, quote, these foreign Indians are totally cultureless. I, this is a very good point that you have made. Um, a lot of times people don't understand that, like you said, you are the exception. You're not the norm. You yourself, you are the exception norm. I think at times Indians in India are very unfair to, you know, Indian kids or Indian origin children. You know, they're Canadians, they're Americans, they're South Africans, they are whatever, they're British. You know, they are what they are. They did not decide where to be born. Their parents moved and, yeah. you know, they are born there. And they immerse themselves into their culture. They could be very Hindu. They could just not speak an Indian language. They could maybe read the Sanskrit bhajan or the Sanskrit yeah. shloka. But they still may not speak Hindi or Tamil mm. or Telugu 
or Kannada, whatever, Marathi, I'm from Maharashtra. And, you know, these cultural fault lines sometimes are unnecessary between, you know, people of Indian origin. They are reducing. Uh, our, like, I'll give you my experience. When I moved to Canada to study in 2001, this was way more. You know, it was clear the gap between Indian origin kids born and raised there. They would hang out more with the white Canadian kids or the white American kids. They would relate more to them. Let's be very clear. They just could not relate to Indians or Pakistanis for that matter. And, you know, us, we would hang out more with Indians and Pakistanis than Indian origin kids who are born and raised in Canada. We just could not relate to them. Now, you know, I, I go back to Canada again and again, and I see the difference now. You know, the the gap is bridging. We, we have served, uh, bridged certain gaps. I think we have become, uh, we as an Indian from India, first gen, first gen immigrants going over there, have kind of reduced that hostility of, kind of a thing. And they have also start, stopped mocking us for our idiosyncrasies. You know, it was very uh, weird at one point of time. I rem it, This in incident has stuck in my head. You know, I expected a white guy to do this with me. An Indian kid born and raised there did this with me. It's like, do you guys have Mercedes in India? <laughs> I was like, I was. And I was like, why are you doing this to me? And, and then in my head, I was like, do I insult him or do I just let go of this issue and move on? And I just, you know, I, I then I was like, yeah, we have magic carpets and elephants too. To basically <laughs> send him a message that, uh, uh, send him a message that, uh, look, you know, you're not white. So stop being like one and don't pretend that you don't know enough about India. I mean, you know a little bit about India, that kind of thing. Like, you know, you expect. Indians, uh, white people to say, oh, you guys had Sega and Atari. I mean, what do you mean we had Sega and Atari? Obviously, we had Sega and Atari. Everybody played video games if they could afford it. So so what do you make of your experience? Because it's not just me raising my grouse. Because I think Indians can be nasty to second and third generation immigrants too. And I've seen that nastiness, you know, towards, uh, yeah. towards uh, uh, second generation immigrants over there too. So what do you make of this entire, you know, mini divide that we have amongst ourselves? So, look, I'd like to think it's not a deliberate attempt to be nasty. I think it's based on a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge. Because what you are talking about is something I've experienced very much in India. And I still experience. And I've experienced this from 1981. And now we are in 2023. I just came back from India on Sunday evening. So I'm still fresh with the experience. And... You know, I had a whole number of literature festivals that I went through. So one of the sort of chapters in the book, I, I don't know if you've read through the whole book, uh, it's set in Bombay where the character is at a wedding and he tests out a girl's reaction to him. And it's, her name is Mamta Chawla in the character in the book uh, to see whether there's an attraction for a South African man or a man from Africa. And he holds a conversation with her and she preens because you can see she's trying to get married. And that happened to me. Uh, you know, I was just testing uh, so the sort of uh, the whole uh, reaction to how people are with regards to Africa. And, you know, uh, when you look at the matrimonials in India, they'll have something for green card. I mean, who has a section for green card? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's, 
if you think about it, it's quite bizarre. How can you have love based on the geography? So I had a good old conversation with this girl and she was totally into me and I wasn't totally into her because I didn't find her attractive, but I was enjoying the conversation because I could see she sensed I was either from the UK or the USA. She was not picking up that my accent is not that of the UK or the USA. And when I eventually told her I'm from Africa, literally you could see the sparkle in her eyes just drain out because just like how, you know, uh, fourth, second and third generation Indian kids in America and USA may look at you guys with a bit of disdain as if you're a backward. I think a lot of um, a high society Indian people in India look at Africa as backward. And the moment you say, you know what, I'm from Africa, I'm from those group of Indians that left in the 1860s, they start thinking, you know what, these guys are living in huts and there's lions running around. I'm telling you, the only reason a lot of Indians in India know South Africa is because of, as you, you mentioned, Keshav Maharaj, is because of cricket. Nothing else. Nothing else. They've never written. You say they don't even know of South Africa as a country. Oh, you're from Africa. Like Africa is one big state, you know. It's not divided into 52 or 54 countries. It just is what it is. It's generally based on, you know what, you want to keep up with the Joneses. So America or USA and, you know, England is the ultimate. Forget the fact that, you know what, you've had your bum pampered in Bombay if you're middle class or in Delhi. Now you're going there, you can't afford servants, you're probably lower middle class and you're cleaning your own toilet where you've never done something so, I don't know, yeah, I say disgusting in inverted commas in India before, but yet they still want to go there. Um, in India, you may be staying in a nice apartment in a nicer area, but in England, when you move there, you're going into those brownstone houses that are attached to the other houses, which, you know, I really don't like. I find there's no architectural marvel about them. I'm the kind of guy, if you can see a bit of my house, I love to have uh, a lot of uh, what you call... Uh, light coming to my house. And I've never seen that in England. It's very dull and dreary. So it all is what it is. It's a lack of not knowing and it's about wanting to keep up with the Joneses. That's all it is. It's, we idolize the West and we negate the East. And Africa, you know, is right at the bottom of the pile. Fair enough. So w one thing that I did notice in your, in this entire book was basically uh a theme of, and this is where I want to close with, a theme of a person exploring his own faith. You know, there are moments where you have those exchanges about conversion with the Christian or anti-Christian jibes. You know, later later on in the book, you, you talk about those things also. So, so maybe this will be my last question to you and we can close at this. What is, what is it to you as a fourth generation South African of Indian origin, what is it to you to be a Hindu? And that's my last question to you. I think that's where we should end because I think this book to me was in a way a, a Hindu's exploration in different ways. Well, I'm, you know, on my father's side, I come from a generation of pundits. You know, if you go back, there's far, they from, uh, or formerly from Allahabad and they left in 1860. Uh, so, uh, but if you look at what my ancestors knew on my father's side, they, you know, they came from the villages. So they were very ritualistic, but they didn't have the philosophy that backed it up, unfortunately. 
on my mom's side they were more arya samaj and uh, you know they were also quite religious but they also knew the philosophy that backed it up because uh, my nana was involved in the arya samaj in south africa so yes i'm a hindu i'm very very much hindu and when i visit india i visit india as not just as an indian i visit india as a very proud hindu i go take my darshan at the temples whether it works or not i don't know whether there is a god or not i love to believe there is a god you know the fact that they might not or the assertion that they might not be a god is a very scary thing for me so what does it mean to me to be a hindu you know i try in as much as possible to have the philosophical understanding of every ritual i do if i do a havan i must understand why i'm doing the havan the mantras is supposed to purify the atmosphere the ghee mixed with the havan samagri it also uh, sort of purifies the atmosphere because you know being uh, being human beings we are always uh, you know polluting the atmosphere so there's a very scientific basis behind doing the havan um so i see myself as a philosophical hindu so you know hinduism has four different paths you can go the path of bhakti yoga which is love karma yoga which is action to the community you can go hatha yoga which is compulsion you can go sit in a cave in an ashram and just pray or or you can do gyana yoga which is what works for me the path of knowledge so i read voraciously on hinduism i've read the mahabharat the bhagavad gita and ramayana a number of times and i've just bought a 22 volume set of the vedas because uh, i didn't want to jump into the vedas straight away i wanted to understand hinduism in terms of the interpretation and that's what ramayana and the bhagavad gita is it's an interpretation of the vedas in a story form whether it's a history or not you know your guess is as good as mine some say it is some say it isn't but it's about the understanding of what they're trying to convey that's important because if you read you know the ramayan versus the ramcharitmana and they written i think about 5000 years apart they vastly different but the essence of the story is the same and yes i'm hindu i've been a vegetarian now 29 years and i still miss meat you know to me as someone who eats meat and gives it up is a recovering alcoholic the danger is always there of you going back because to me nothing tastes as nice as meat it has a certain chewiness it has give you a sense of satisfaction that maybe vegetarian food may not uh, so you tend to eat a bit more of the vegetarian food because you miss the taste of meat you're not satisfied but my conscience dictates to me if i cannot kill it then i cannot eat it right so i got to live with the elements of my with the dictates of my conscience some say hinduism favors vegetarianism some says it leaves it open ended I'd like to believe it favors vegetarianism so I try to follow hinduism as long as it aligns with my conscience that I accept it so that's it in a nutshell yes fair enough. I'm a... fair enough uh, aman it was an absolute pleasure talking to you but uh, before uh, we we start, wrap everything up uh, so what's next after this book are you going to dabble with fiction again or maybe non fiction this time You know, I really thought I want to be a one-hit wonder, but uh, my publicity <laughs> agent and a whole number of people uh, are insisting that I must write another book. I write a, quite a few articles. I've just started writing articles internationally. I've done one on uh, cricket, uh, not uh, in as much about cricket, about more about the social 
issues related to cricket between India and South Africa. So that was published, I think it was in The Guardian uh, in India. And so I'm going to do a lot more articles and I'm thinking about a book right now. You know, writing doesn't pay the bills. In fact, you lose a lot of money from writing. You do it purely for the passion. And for me, it was also for my ego. I wanted to become well-known. So uh, that's one of the other reasons besides the passion for writing. So uh, it's most likely I am going to write another book, but I just need to figure out what's the theme and then I'll go forward. I don't need to plan what it is. Once I know what the theme is, it unfolds for itself. So hopefully within right. the next year. All right. Awesome. Uh, I, I wish you the best with all your future endeavors. Uh, I, I, I look forward to uh, reading your work. I, I'll actually check out your article on uh, cricket. Uh, I, I did not sure. go through this. So, so that cricket is something that I have a lot of passion about. It is along with mixed martial arts. Uh, that those are the two oh. sports that I very passionately follow. So yeah, I, I look forward to reading it. Aman, it was a pleasure talking to you. I wish you nothing but the best and um, looking forward to reading your work in the future. Thanks, Kushal, for your time and a splendid interview. You take care and have a good rest of the day for you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. That's all right, guys. Viewers. Yeah. No, uh, I'm saying all right. Viewers. Oh, yeah. So, so I'm sorry about that. I, I, I just got a delay. All right, guys. We'll wrap today's discussion up once again. Uh, if you want to uh, go and check out the description, uh, uh, whether you're listening to the audio version or you're watching the video version, in the description, I will leave all the social media links, uh, whether it's Aman's website, the link to buy the book, etc., etc. You can go and check it out. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know the drill. Uh, subscribe to the Charvak Podcast YouTube channel. Like this video. Leave a comment. Or if you're on Spotify, iTunes, leave a review, leave a rating. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, as you know, this is a member-driven podcast. So please become a member. It doesn't matter whether you become a member on YouTube, Patreon, or Fanmo. Or you can buy the Charvak Podcast merch on uh, kushalmehra.com. Uh, I'll see you guys next time with another interesting discussion. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah.